90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you doing? Well, it was the, as of recording day, it was the first day of class today, so um, I'm bushed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm tired, but mostly it's because it's cold here. We've been in the single digits every morning and every evening and oh. really windy. Oh, well, I guess I won't rub in that I was uh, in your neck of the woods and was hiking all over Hot Springs, Arkansas this weekend, and it was beautiful. I mean, not t-shirt weather, but it was close. Yeah, that's a gorgeous area. And did you go to any of the quartz mines down there where you can go dig these huge clusters of quartz crystals? No, and it's weird. I've never done that. I oh, it's so to. much fun. <laughs> I, I camped with a friend and did that uh, several years ago. I think we did it for like three or four days, just camped and dug quartz crystals all day. It was so much fun. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah, we're we're definitely going to have to do that. No, we were... Again, scouting for my um, field geology class, which, you know, is just an excuse to basically go wherever I want within a, you know, 800-mile radius and look at rocks. It's pretty pretty groovy. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, besides that, um, getting done with the first day of class and uh, taught my native science class today, and looks like it will be a fun day. We're using our new technology classroom We've got round tables and a whole bunch of TVs, and it should be difficult, but fun. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, technology and you don't always get along. So exactly. You can... know, I'm trying. I'm trying. I even looked up how to become a hacker the other day, just to, <laughs> just to read about some computer lingo. <laughs> oh, my. I, I figured you'd appreciate that. So I've got all kinds of, you know, Perl and Java questions, but... We'll talk about that on another time. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'll link into the show notes. There's a there's a Weird Al song that's got a lot of the terminology you'll need. Uh, it's it's all about the Pentiums. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And nerds love Weird Al, so I will fit right in. Yeah, it, it told me to not show off my, my uh, hacking prowess, to just sit back and be good at what I do, and that'll give me more cred as a hacker, so. Well, that's... you know, I saw... Uh, Somebody has posted online a script. If you stay at an Airbnb, a lot of the Airbnb owners now are putting these Wi-Fi connected cameras like nests or something mm-hmm. in so that they can monitor and make sure that you're not destroying the place that you're renting. Okay. Uh, and this person said, well, that's an invasion of my privacy and happened to be a very good coder and wrote a script that when you run it, it finds any network cameras on the network you're connected to and disables them. That would fall under the blurb that I read about do something for free that everyone will want to use. It, it also falls under the blurb about being illegal. <laughs> Wasn't well, Airbnb kind of illegal anyway? I, I think it's on the edge. It's yeah. one of those things like Uber that I always want to try when I travel but don't. It's amazing. You're missing out. I'm going to tell you that right now. <laughs> Oh, man, this has gone downhill quick. <laughs> it has. Were we going to talk about, like, something pertinent today or no? I mean, whatever. I don't really mind. <laughs> well, you know, I I am going to be doing some travel, so we need to talk about, you know, transportation yeah. at some point. But we can do that offline. <laughs> but you... I thought that last week we did a staple of geology education, which was glaciers and 
by did it, I mean we touched the surface. <laughs> Barely, yes. <laughs> yeah. So I thought it was only fair that this week I get to talk about uh, a geophysics staple. You know, when you told me what we we're going to talk about, I really got scared because you know I hate the geoid so much. <laughs> yes, and the geoid is nowhere in the show notes. <laughs> I was impressed. But for those of you that don't know, that means we're going to talk about something that's near and dear to all of us, and that's gravity. <laughs> it's the law. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. So gravity is actually a really subtle and fascinating way that we can help find out what's beneath our feet and learn a lot about the geology uh, that's around us by using some really sensitive instruments and actually some pretty basic physics. Uh, yes, this is one of my favorite instruments to run um, just because it kind of just seems like it makes sense. I know it's very complex, but just on the surface, it seems like it makes sense. Haha. <laughs> and um right. <laughs> and it's really important because, you know, there's only the small amount of geology that we can see and we're interested in much bigger stuff under our feet. And you can't get, you know, rock co drill cores everywhere you want. And gravity is one of these semi-inexpensive ways that you can try to figure out what's beneath you. Yeah, and I mean, you think that, you know, we always get a lot of trouble from people as geophysicists that say all of your problems are so under-constrained and so non-unique. <laughs> That's I, nothing compared to geology. I actually ooh. get to know what's under me, kind of, ah, instead see, of only be able to see the surface. And that's what I always think about gravity is that it's, and this was even on the cover of, I think, at GSA Today not very long ago, a year or so ago, and it talked about the non-uniqueness of gravity solutions. But that doesn't mean that it's not useful. What it means is, Geophysicists need to know a lot about geology, and geologists need to know a lot about geophysics to make sure that these gravity measurements and what they're interpreting make sense. It means you have to interpret with your brain engaged, which is always a good idea. <laughs> uh, yes, no drunk deriving around here. Right. <laughs> so all geophysical methods are based on some kind of property difference. There has to be something different about the rock or the lack of rock or the different layers of rock that we can sense. And there's a lot of different physical properties, hence we have a really wide variety of methods that we can use. Right, so like seismic, which might be something that a lot of people have heard a lot about. You know, we've certainly talked about it. Um, and obviously all this earthquake talks, we talk a lot about seismicity. Um, but that's, you know, acoustics, right? So you're looking at the difference between how sound travels in between different rocks, and that's how you can image what's beneath you. So that that's acoustics, right? And then you have all kinds of electrical differences between different rocks, and then there's this gravity stuff, too. Yeah, and gravity just means that we're sensing differences in density in material. So how weighty per a unit volume it is. So we me generally measure that in kilograms per cubic meter since we use the metric system. Or <laughs> if you want to think of it in terms of standard, it could be something like pounds per cubic foot, but I've never seen that used. Oh, no, and I can't even wrap my head around that, really. <laughs> yeah, me either. <laughs> <laughs> so let's not go there. <laughs> yeah, so really, gravity is an acceleration, which just means that it's a length per time squared or length per time per time. Which was always sort of 
weird to think about gravity being an acceleration. I remember in intro physics, it was kind of before I got my head wrapped around all those things. It's like, what does that exactly mean, though? Yeah, so if you think about it, meters per second per second. So how many meters a second are you accelerating every second? So if right. you drop a ball, its speed will increase 9.8 meters per second per second. And that's an acceleration. That's the acceleration of gravity. That's how fast the Earth is pulling the ball towards the center of the Earth or the center-ish. <laughs> yeah, you got to get that geoid in there to figure out where the real center of mass is, right? <laughs> yeah, the center of mass, which is always tricky. And it actually can vary with a ton of factors that we'll talk about. Oh, yeah, which is what makes geophysics pure nonsense because you can't ever account for <laughs> everything that you need to. But we'll continue on this charade. <laughs> yeah. So in high school, and I always think this is uh, funny. I like to tell this to people. In high school, you learn <laughs> that gravity is 9.8 meters per second squared. And then you take college physics, and they say, well, we're going to use 9.81. Right. And then you go to get a graduate degree in geoscience, and gravity is 10. I thought this was really funny because uh, <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> and the reason is we don't know the physical properties of the rocks to that precision. Right. So that's like saying that you're going to measure the length of a football field to a nanometer. Significant digits. See, they're important somewhere. <laughs> yes, they do come back. So <laughs> we, most of the time for a lot of calculations, call it 10. Now, when you're using the gravity method, you're obviously not going to do that. Yeah, yeah. But for all other purposes, 10's close enough. <laughs> it's not an exact science. <laughs> nope. <laughs> so the acceleration of gravity changes based on where you are on the Earth very, very slightly. Right. Because of what's under you. Exactly. Which isn't yep. homogenous. We're not a big homogenous ball, so. No, we wouldn't have jobs if that was the case. <laughs> so true. <laughs> so... <laughs> The, the way that you calculate the force of gravity is you have to know the universal gravitational constant, uh, <laughs> which is a number. It's derived experimentally. It exists. And, That's and all I we'll love, say about it. <laughs> well, and the fact that we just call it big G. Yes, big G. <laughs> For real. That's really what we say. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then you have to know the masses of the two objects that are being attracted, so mass one, mass two, and okay. the radius between them. And like we talked about on the tide show, the radius squared is what controls the force of gravity. So if you go twice as far away, gravity's four times less, and so on. It's not linear. Right, which is just like magnetism too. So just throwing yeah, that out there. Yeah, <laughs> and light, all kinds of stuff. Everything The inverse else. square law. Exactly. <laughs> and we know that a force is a mass times acceleration, thanks to Sir Isaac. Mm -hmm. So by doing a little bit of manipulation, we can get that the acceleration of gravity is big G times the mass of the Earth divided by the radius squared. And now you've got G. Now you have G. And if you plug the mass of the Earth in, plug in big G, plug in the radius of the Earth, you'll actually get something that sounds like what you know from high school. And that's some pretty easy math, too. So, you know, for fun, you could do this for all the planets and whatever and just see how different it would be to live somewhere else. 
Yeah, it's a neat exercise, really. Uh, yeah, it is. I really like anything that starts out with F equals MA. I feel like it's very intuitive and nice and friendly. Yeah. Now, here's where things are going to start to get a little tricky. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so meters per second squared is a pretty crude unit. <laughs> it is the warp number of gravity. Yeah. It's a very, very large unit. Right. The actual unit is gals after Galileo, and 980 gals is about normal gravity. So a gal is a centimeter per second squared. Right, which you could figure out because it's 980, not 9.8 meters per second. Right. Then if you're being really strict about using the correct units, you would use the gravity unit, which is microns per second squared. So 10 gravity units is 10 milligals. Now, but I, I mean, just like you've said, I usually just see stuff as milligal, and that's how we've always talked about it in class, right? Yeah, I've never really seen a gravity unit used in academic papers, though I don't keep up with the gravity literature that okay. much. Okay, but just not, is it just not that attractive to you? <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting this whole time. Yeah. <laughs> so a milligal or a microgal, you know, they're just smaller divisions of right. the gal. It's like millimeters or microns to a meter, right? Right. Exactly. It just makes the numbers a little more friendly when we don't have to write all these decimal places that are filled with zeros. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Right. Okay. So next, the Earth's gravitational field. Now we know how to calculate gravity. We know what units we're going to talk about it in. Okay. I've said the gravitational field is complex and not the same everywhere on the surface of the Earth. Right. Well, your friend the geoid. <laughs> <laughs> you had to bring it up. <laughs> yeah, I did. So the Earth's shape is irregular. Right. Not only that, if you get rid of all the irregularity, the Earth is not a sphere. It's an oblate spheroid. It's squished. Mm-hmm. Due to that pesky rotation stuff. Yeah, that rotation thing that we seem to like night and day. (laughs) So the radius of the earth is smaller at the poles. Mm -hmm. Not by much, but that little bit of radius difference means that gravity is stronger at the poles by about 0.7% compared to what it is at the equator. Right. So if you want to weigh in, you want to weigh in at the equator. Correct. And I know 0.7% doesn't sound like much, but in terms of doing gravity surveys, it's huge. Right, because you got to remember, we're talking about million microgals and you know that's tiny right so then there's also like you said the earth's spinning and that centrifugal force reduces the gravity at the equator and that reduction is a function of latitude because depending on your latitude depends how fast you're spinning right right as in addition to the difference in the radius right so The other complication, then, is (laughs) centrifugal force acts perpendicular to the axis of rotation. Mm -hmm. And since the Earth is a ball, that means it's not acting straight up out of the ground. Right. Gravity's pulling you straight down, but this acts at some angle, so it actually turns the gravity vector a little bit away from the center of the Earth. Which is not cool. (laughs) No, and what's amazing is this was completely... Uh, figured out and calculated to enough precision that we could still use it today if we wanted to in the mid-1700s. 
Wow. So before any of these fancy gravimeters that we rely on so heavily today. Yeah, before we could measure it, we knew that it was going to be there. We already knew. That's pretty right. impressive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that shows you if you have a theory and you make a prediction from it, eventually someone will test it. Uh, yeah, that that is true. So that's a few things that the Earth does to change gravity based with position. But there are also geologic controls that are more local, and that's what we really care about, right? Exactly, because that's the whole point of using this uh, remote sensing technique is to look at the rocks. Yeah, and here's where some of that non-uniqueness starts to creep in. (laughs) (laughs) Besides the fact that you can't see below you. (laughs) Right. The density for rocks, pretty much any rock, is going to be between 1.2 and 3.5, 3.6 grams per cubic centimeter. Oh, see, this is where you're just killing me. (laughs) Why is that? Well, you geophysicist, you know, it's just this huge sort of smeared out thing, right? Because you can have a sandstone that's cemented with quartz or a sandstone that's cemented with calcite or a sandstone that's cemented with my crypto crystal in quartz, you know, and those densities are going to vary even though it's all sandstone and you guys are just like sandstone. This is its density. Painful well, you for see, me. <laughs> as a geophysicist, I probably wouldn't even say sandstone. I would just say sediments. Oh, even and more <laughs> painful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so there's a huge range. <laughs> and unless you have some kind of ground truth, like you have outcrops of these different units that are below you from right. different locations and you can measure their density, mm-hmm. there's going to be some guesswork. Yes. And sometimes that's a lot because sometimes you're working over a, you know, grassy field and then you don't have anything. (laughs) Yeah. Or you're modeling something, you're modeling a gravity line that goes across a state. Yeah. Or that. And yeah. So that's one of the hardest things to do is know what the appropriate density to use is. Now we know that, say, a sandstone is going to be less dense than a basalt. Right. So in terms no of differences, what. yeah. So in terms of differences, you're going to see that. Yeah. And sediments are generally the least dense thing that we're going to see, period. Right. And when I'll, I say sediments, you would call it sandstone or whatever other kind of sedimentary thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, my entire life's work. But that's okay. Right. You can whitewash it in that one word. <laughs> <laughs> so then it gets a little more complicated because igneous and metamorphic rocks, their densities are pretty much overlapping. Which stinks because, I mean, there's very, there's so much different in terms of how they got to where they were and what they are and the geologic processes between igneous and metamorphic rocks. So. Yeah. And, I mean, this is another one of those things where each of these three types of rocks has probably 20 to 50 subfields that people make careers in. Oh, yeah, exactly. And I'm just saying, eh, they're all the same (laughs) (laughs) it's okay i lump igneous and metamorphic together too (laughs) yeah so i mean yeah it's it's something that we can't constrain and oh the density it's affected by everything um the age the depth like you said the cementation if there's pore fluid in it what kind of pore fluids in it Mm -hmm. the composition of the sand grains is a big deal quartz is way different than feldspar and metamorphic fragments can be your sand which are way different obviously so oh yeah yeah (laughs) so 
that introduces some non-uniqueness. And then, because it's not already bad enough, <laughs> the depth, there's a depth density, or, well, depth size trade-off. Uh. So is, is it something really dense, really deep, or is it something not so dense, close to the surface? Really shallow, yeah, exactly. See, geophysicists, now, this is why you have to pay attention in geology class. Right. And, I mean, using the size of the object and what kind of wavelength anomaly it would generate, you can constrain that somewhat, but you're never going to be able to pin it down exactly. Well, right, because you can't see it, which right. is the I mean, whole the, point it's, it's, of using gravity to look at it. It's a trade-off. <laughs> yes. The so, biggest trade-off, probably. Right. So you, you have to have some kind of geologic intuition about what's going on. You know, you can't be making sedimentary layers that dip down a few hundred kilometers right. with a constant density or something crazy. Mm-hmm. Although that does get done sometimes, I think. Yeah, there have been gravity models that have just big holes in them to match yeah. the data. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So you do have to be careful about that. But it has a lot of uses, and that's why we continue to do it, right? So it's not totally useless. Right. I mean, yes, geophysics is not totally useless. You're correct. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, these are very wide-ranging. Some of the early uses for gravity and what spurred a lot of its development, like everything else in geology and geophysics, was the oil and gas industry. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean... The service companies that, you know, the names that people are familiar with, Halliburton, I mean, Schlumberger especially. I mean, the Schlumberger brothers were into looking at electrical differences between rocks. And it's basically what the company still does today. Yeah. And, I mean, this is where gravity actually does really well because you have rock that's not filled with oil, rock that's filled with oil, or areas that don't have dense mineral veins and mm -hmm. areas that have mineral veins, which would be much denser than their surroundings. Right. So not just so, oil, but, you know, ore deposits. That's a big deal, too. And then you've got some really dense sort of mineral deposits, and that would be, they use gravity to monitor that because you don't want to spend your time digging somewhere if you can use this relatively cheap, non-invasive tool to tell you, you know, where your vein of ore is going. Exactly. And, I mean, you could shoot a seismic survey, or do something more complicated, but if you just need to know where your mine's next tunnel should be, gravity's a pretty good bet in terms of cost and benefit. Uh, yeah, we were actually talking, um, we went to a couple of gold mines during our time at field camp because there's the Colorado Mineral Belt, you know, there's a lot of um, mineral deposits there, and that's what they were talking about doing, actually, because it doesn't take much to run a gravity survey. I know we're not going to talk a lot about it today, um, but I know you and I have done it a couple of times, and it that's it. It takes about two people, basically, to run this, as opposed to an entire seismic team and everything that goes along with that. And you get your data pretty fast. Yeah, and the reduction can be a little complicated, which we will talk about. But Yes. <laughs> uh, so you can the use voodoo. it to look for oil and mineral uh, I've heard that there's some monitoring of CO2 containment sites with it. Mm -hmm. uh, a big one, glaciologists do gravity a lot to tie this back to last week to get the thickness of the ice and the thickness of the sediments underlying the ice. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, because we know ice density profiles pretty well. 
you know, I, I will say we just had a conversation today about how snow is a mineral. I just wanted to let you know that other people say this Oh, stuff. that's good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, um, so, I mean, volcanoes, that's a good yeah. one. Yeah, Big that magma bubbles moving around. Yes, exactly. That one's really, really needed, actually. Um, <laughs> because, you know, these these big plutons what we call these big igneous bodies under volcanoes move a lot and we use all kinds of stuff to monitor them and you know gravity tends to do a really good job there yeah and i mean with all volcanic studies the hazard is your instrument ends up getting destroyed at some point yeah that's true (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but they do occasionally get used to try to find subsurface structures that are natural or Mm man-made uh Natural structures would be more, a more obvious use, like trying to figure out where the layers are dipping or if they get folded or what, you know, if there's a fault there. Right. Right. Uh, exactly. Man-made, we generally know where it is anyway. You would hope. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we have done exercises in intro to geophysics classes with students where we say, you know, go out and take a gravity survey over the steam tunnel on campus. Yes, we have. And tell me how big the steam tunnel is. <laughs> Which, and it works really well. And it's also good to, you know, look at things that you know about so you can convince yourself that what you're doing is actually correct. <laughs> right. And that's another place where you can common sense check yourself and say, well, if the steam tunnel, if my calculations say it's 10 centimeters in diameter and people walk there. Exactly. There, there's a problem. So <laughs> <laughs> um, your... Well, there's one application that I think should be your favorite, so I'll let you talk about it. Oh, absolutely. Um, So we talk a lot about gravity and magnetics, both when we're talking about um, meteorite craters. Yay. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Mostly because, I mean, these are circular features, or mostly circular features, if they haven't been tectonically screwed up, which is also slightly near and dear to my heart. Um, And... The reason is, I mean, you know, these are cheap and easy ways to find these depressions, right? Because when you brecciate a rock, any kind of rock, so when it gets broken up due to the um, force of the impact, you're really changing the density by quite a bit. And so when you see these sort of circular gravity anomalies or magnetic anomalies, you know, there's not a whole lot of explanation for them besides meteorite crater. And I know people do this just for fun, Um you know, they look at these available magnetics and gravity surveys just to identify meteorite craters. Yeah, and I mean, you think about it, you blow a big hole in the ground, and then you fill it with squishy sediment, and it gets <laughs> yep. buried a little bit, mm-hmm. not much probably. Mm-hmm. It's going to create this huge gravity low. Gravity will be less there because there's less dense material under you. Right. And yeah, they pop out, and there's a lot of free data, as you point out. Yeah, exactly. It's it's kind of fun to do, and it, it doesn't matter. I mean, it gets away from a little bit of that non-uniqueness because it doesn't matter if you brecciate, that's a rough word, um, <laughs> a sedimentary rock or an igneous rock or a metamorphic rock, no matter what, you're making it less dense. So these lows, you know, should light up, and they're circular features, and there you go. There's been a lot of, there's been a lot of meteorite craters that were discovered this way. So Well, yeah, pretty... and that's one of those things where, like you said, the yawn uniqueness isn't such a big deal mm-hmm. because you know there's a meteorite crater there, so then you can use other methods to constrain how deep you have to go. Right, exactly. And that kind of thing. Yeah, and, I mean, it's probably one of the only non-unique ones, except that time that we found that 
found that uh, sewer pipe that was right there and we could have looked at it and we did a gravity survey on top of it anyway. <laughs> but it modeled that really well. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> oh, yes, I remember doing that. Some kind of paper-based pipe or something, a really old uh, one. Yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that was also an intro geology yeah yeah well we did one we did one in my field area too because um part of my um i study these sandstone dikes and we don't know anything about the orientation of the dikes at depth and so we thought hey we'll run a gravity survey over them because they were in igneous rocks and so we thought that there'd be enough of a contrast but turns out there was a pipe down the road and so oh (laughs) i forgot about that one but yes we did (laughs) so yeah it's really good for finding pipes (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, they're very close, yep, and it's a big exactly. density contrast, rock versus air. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So measuring gravity, you can do it a lot of different ways, and as much as I want to talk about how gravimeters work, <laughs> I don't yourself. know that people want me to talk about it, <laughs> and I don't know that we have time, so maybe some other time we can, but we have to ex- introduce a lot of concepts like zero length springs and all kinds of weird measurement things. And really expensive quartz crystals. Yeah. So <laughs> the first thing to know about gravimeters is they cost. Oh, yeah. So I said it's cheap, and I keep throwing out that word, but it's not cheap up front. <laughs> right. And there are two different types of gravimeters, the absolute gravimeter and the relative gravimeter. The absolute gravimeter is absolutely expensive. And the relative gravimeter is relatively expensive. But they also measured slightly different things. So an absolute gravimeter tells you exactly what the acceleration of gravity is at the point that you're sitting. So it will say 9.81 dot, 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 dot. Right, which is why it's so expensive, because that's pretty impressive. Yes. You pay for significant digits. And they do all kinds of crazy things like bouncing mirrors up and down and very wild things. Mm. Uh, I got a brochure at AGU for a quantum absolute gravimeter. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even want to know how much that is. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things if you have to ask the price. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I gotcha. <laughs> but we don't carry these around in the field. They're pretty big. They might fit in the back of a small pickup truck and they take hours and hours to set up and to take one measurement, they take days. Right. These are are used to create base stations where we know what the absolute gravity is. Right. And those are pretty, I mean, I wouldn't say pretty few and far between, but not they're not always super nearby, right? They're not always. And if you want to tie your gravity data into the rest of the world's gravity data, you need an absolute reference. Exactly. So I remember taking gravity surveys, driving two and a half hours to the nearest gravity base station, which was <laughs> in an airport, going and taking my survey and then after i was totally exhausted driving back yeah to take a reading again to calculate out drift uh which i mean taking a reading using these other gravimeters takes like you know a minute so yeah it's four hours for a minute's worth of data (laughs) the relative gravimeter which is what we do carry around in the field is about the size of a toaster oven And they work different ways. There are some that you have to lean over and twist knobs and look through basically a microscope eyepiece and line up little lines. Mm -hmm. Those are older. Way more difficult than it sounds like, too. Uh, Yes. (laughs) I mean, you breathe on it and you're done. Uh, Then there are the electronic ones, the more modern ones, like a Syntrex CG5, that 
you press a button, stand there, wait half a minute, it beeps, you pick it up and go to the next station. <laughs> Which actually takes all the fun out of it, I think. I really like those old tube-looking gravimeters. But. Yeah. I mean, at least you have something to do to keep you warm. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and you got to yeah. cover yourself up because it's, you know, you can't have sunlight in there because you can't see it. And yeah, it's always fun. Yeah. So to do the measurements that we're talking about, to figure out what the difference in acceleration due to different kinds of rock beneath you is, we need to be able to measure gravity to about one part in a billion. That's tiny. <laughs> and that to give you an idea of how precise that is, that's like measuring the distance to the moon to within a meter. I thought that was a really cool, um, a really cool comparison. Yeah, and granted, we can do better than that. Yeah, yeah. Measuring exactly. the distance to the moon, we can get it sub centimeter, but that's also a different show. Yes. <laughs> so lasers, yay. <laughs> yeah. So we're just going to talk about the relative perimeters because that's what we use in the field, and. Right. Normally, there's some kind of a test mass inside. Uh, basically, just means a weight. Right. And it's inside this vacuum uh, chamber that the outside of it is temperature controlled, so there's no thermal expansion and contraction. And they balance it through a variety of different ways. Hence the spring and quartz crystal talk earlier. <laughs> right. <laughs> and if this sounds sensitive, expensive, and fragile... <laughs> It's because it is. I mean, and these are these are things that you buy its own plane ticket so it can sit in the seat next to you when you travel. Right. And fragile is not exactly what you want to hear when you talk about field gear. Oh, especially because we've had students that have run them over with trucks, which is not a good way to take care of your Centrex. Right. If <laughs> the Centrex tips over, just over it needs to be onto sent back and recalibrated. Yeah, that's unbelievable to me. And you use these out, you know, in the wild, right? <laughs> yeah. So you have to keep it upright. I have been on gravity surveys where somebody started sliding down the side of a mountain <laughs> yes. and was torn pants and bloody because they were holding the gravimeter above their head level while they were sliding. <laughs> I've seen the same thing, and that is true <laughs> dedication to your work. I mean, that's knowing what your priorities are. Oh, exactly. Exactly. I'd you like can to heal. Actually... The pain of sending a gravimeter back cannot. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because it looks like this very indestructible box. Like, oh, that's a good piece of field equipment. And then you're like, you can't breathe on it or it will die. <laughs> Ridiculous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's got to sit there. Like, wherever you take it, it's got to sit there and relax for a certain amount of time so it gets used to the gravity of where it is and it's a fickle little guy yeah you have to let it um the modern centrex gravimeters you set them up and they take readings for a day or two i think mm -hmm. to know where they are how to do the tide correction all that right so. so it's cool and impressive but very very fickle and fragile and yeah yeah, and that's one reason that I don't like gravity as a field method, because I'm always terrified of destroying the <laughs> instrument. <laughs> yeah, it's a little scary. Yeah. But to give you an idea of how sensitive these are, we'll talk about this exact thing later, because you actually have to do a correction for it. Mm -hmm. But if you put the gravimeter, the Centrex, on the floor and take a reading, and then you put it on top of the table in the classroom and take a reading you can calculate how high the table is off the floor based on the difference in radius from the center of the mass of the Earth. 
Right. The center and mass of the earth. That's yes. impressive. And you can measure that, you know, two, three foot change. Right. Which for, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, you'd expect that that's what you would get. Yeah. And that's, um, you're generally talking six figures for a relative gravimeter. Right. Right. Even but used. Super useful. Right. So let's say you have your relative gravimeter, however you paid for it, and however you threatened the undergraduates that are going to be using it. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, and you're going to do a survey in the field. You're not done just with the gravimeter. Because <laughs> uh, of all that stuff about the earth that we talked about, right? <laughs> you yeah. really need to know where you are so you can make all these ridiculous corrections that you have to make <laughs> to make sure you're actually measuring differences in gravity and you haven't just messed this up because you don't know exactly what the gravity is because you don't know where you are right so you have to know where you are in x and y position you know so whether you're standing here or standing there mm-hmm. to within a few meters at worst and thanks to gps that's not hard uh, right. We can we, get our horizontal position down to a couple of millimeters now. Yes. Pretty with easy. A, with an expensive GPS, you can, yes. Uh, right. So you can't use your handheld Garmin. But with a GPS that, again, is anywhere in the five or six figure range. Right. You can do this. The challenge is vertical. So remember I said that you can measure the height of the table. You have to know your position vertically to within less than a centimeter. And that's not always super easy. Especially because the earth, solid earth tide, the actual elevation of the ground relative to a fixed point in space moves a lot more it's than that more just than because that. of the tide. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it's not just your location. It's the time as well. Yeah. And the time, granted, if you got it within a minute or a few minutes, you're fine. Yes, yeah, exactly. But the position is really important. So normally we use a technique called differential GPS for this that takes into account all kinds of crazy things, like the amount of water vapor in the air between your GPS receiver and the satellite, because that changes the propagation time. (laughs) Exactly. And it just means, you know, twice the expense, because now you're going to have two really fancy GPSs. And, I mean, this isn't... You can do gravity surveys over a really wide area, and you can set up your, your base station GPS, right? And then you've got this traveling GPS that goes along with you and the gravimeter because you have to know where you're taking your, you know, your measurements from. And, you know, you just leave this thousands of dollar base station out on a mountain somewhere and hope that, you know, a deer isn't going to come along and knock it over. A person isn't going to come along and take it because it's shiny and cool. (laughs) Um, It's kind of scary. There's a lot of faith left in in doing this, I think. Yeah, and I try to generally find somebody that's a landowner that will let me put it in their backyard. Right, but, which which doesn't mean they're not going to go out and poke it either. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it, I've even had a case where the battery that was running that uh, failed in the middle of the day. And the entire second half Mm-mm. of the day that I did a gravity survey, the data was useless because we didn't have good positioning. Right, and you have no idea that that's happening, so... Right. Now, yeah. there are systems that are called real-time kinetic systems that are starting to get around that, but they're incredibly right. expensive and not very many people have them. Right. So, yeah, there's all kinds of other problems that can happen. Right. So <laughs> then once you get your data and you come back, 
you have to do all kinds of corrections on it to make sure that you're actually, like you said, measuring differences in gravity due to things under your feet, not due to a slew of other factors. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Like you were standing too close to a car or some other thing that would change the density around you. Those are big deals, you know. That's something you always have to be aware of, which sucks because doing gravity, I mean, let's admit, it's pretty mind-numbing. <laughs> uh, yeah, it can be very boring. <laughs> so you have to still, like, pay attention because, you know, you take it next to this tree or this mountain or something like that, and you always have to correct for that, which has the coolest name ever, which is Bouguet Corrections, right? Right. So actually, <laughs> my well, intro geophysics person always called it booger corrections. But. <laughs> <laughs> so this is one of those things where you can tell who's done a survey in the field and who hasn't by somebody that hasn't done a survey will look at a map that was created with gravity data or any kind of geophysical data and say, why, is, why aren't there more data points here? Why is this so sparsely sampled? And then somebody who's actually done a field survey will look at that and go, wow, this was a ton of work. <laughs> because you had to walk this really sensitive box up the side of this mountain here. Exactly. <laughs> and you did, you know, 20 or 30 different data points in one day. Wow. <laughs> Which is always the importance of getting people out in the field. Because even if you never take another geophysical, you know, data point in your life, now, when you consume that data as a geologist, you understand what went into it to get it. This is one of my biggest sort of soapboxes I feel about field work is that, yes, you're not going to go off and be a field geologist. I understand that. But you need to know what goes into the data you're consuming. And I think everyone, every geologist should have to take an intro geophysics class that takes you outside to gather this data and see how awful it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it when ITA'd the geophysics field camp, we had lots of people that had a lot more respect for the geophysicists at the end because, you know, they said, oh, well, we geologists, we go out and we work hard. We, we hike a lot further than you all do. But then after they realized that we hike about, you know, 70% of the same distance while carrying two car batteries. Exactly. <laughs> it took me two vans to bring all the geophysical equipment back home from camp. And there was only, mm -hmm. you know, six geophysics students. So, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, let's see. I think what were we going to do? Corrections. That's right. where we were. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Okay. The first correction is one that is pretty easy. It's instrument drift. Right, which is easy to get a handle on. The instruments usually record this anyway, and it's just a simple subtraction, right? Yeah, so if you set up a local base station, and a couple times a day you'll go back to the exact same point and take another measurement, and it won't be the same. Right. That's because with temperature, with use, with aging, your instrument calibration changes slightly, so you just fit a line and subtract it out. It's no problem. Fairly simple. Yeah. Then there's tide correction, which used to be uh, a little bit more miserable. You had to calculate it <laughs> manually. Now, most of the digital gravimeters calculate it automatically. And automatically. It yeah, that's super nice. Yeah. Uh, then there's a latitude correction, which we talked about. Mm -hmm. The formula has been known for a long time. It's a semi-complicated formula, but I have seen it done in Excel. Right. 
In fact, there's an entire gravity reduction spreadsheet in Excel that you can download if yes. you so wish. <laughs> Bet it hurts you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> then you have to correct for what's called the free air correction. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> I think it's funny. Yeah. So this is exactly what I said about putting the gravimeter on the table. That difference in distance from the center of mass of the Earth is going to change your reading by a very precise amount of 0. 0.3086 milligals per meter. And okay. this is something that I always put on tests, geophysics students, uh, <laughs> of calculating this because you just take the derivative if you know calculus. Mm -hmm. uh, or if you don't know calculus, you plug in one one given number into the gravity formula, and then you plug in that number plus one for the yep. radius and get the difference. Uh, so you have to correct for that. You know, how, if you're standing on top of a mountain, you're further from the center of the earth. Right. Now that takes out just if you were standing on top of a mountain, but there was no mountain there. Right. The rock mass between you and sea level has to also be taken out. Uh. And what? this is where you have to make more assumptions about what the density of the rock mass exactly. between you and sea level is. Exactly. And like all good geophysicists, it's about 2.65. <laughs> I just, part of me just died. Uh, yeah. So that's a good rough number, unless you have a good reason to say that the uh, density of the rock between you and sea level is something different than 2.65 grams per cubic centimeter. You don't. Oh, so painful. We need to uh, move on. And that is called the Bouguer correction. Oh, yep. Or uh, I think some people call it the slab correction that don't want to say Bouguer. Yeah, because it looks like booger. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then there's one that this correction doesn't get done a lot. Yeah, cause because it's hard. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's hard. If you do it manually, it takes forever. If you oh. get a computer program that will do it, you pay an incredible amount of money for the program. Yeah, because it still takes forever. Right. It's called the terrain correction. Uh, and this is because everything, you know, pulls on everything else, right? So if you've got a bunch of mountains around you, you've got your gravity vector getting deflected based on what those mountains are made of, where you're at in relation to them. And that is a lot of corrections. Yeah. So if if you're next to a valley, which is a mass deficit, there's right. <laughs> air instead of rock there, the gravity vector actually bends very slightly away from the valley. Right, and towards what's It doesn't what's pull denser. straight down. Yep. Right, and f inverse with mountains. It bends towards the mountains. Yep. So how far away these features are matters, inverse square law. Mm -hmm. So there's this wonderful thing called a hammer chart <laughs> that you would get. It's got all these different... Uh, range circles on it. It looks kind of like a radar screen would in uh, yeah. you know, the old air traffic <laughs> control centers. So true. The boxes are very small at the center because things that are close to you matter. And they get bigger further away because as you get further out, you can average more. Right. Exactly. And what you would do is you would get one that was the correct scale. You would lay it on top of a topographic chart and then you would figure out the average elevation in that box and write it down. So and so do it for you, every box. Yes. So what you should take from this is that you should only do geophysics on the planes. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> With no cattle around. <laughs> yeah. And this is one of those things that did take a long time. Now, like I said, there are computer programs that take in uh, digital elevation models 
that were shot with radar from the space shuttle because right. we live in the future. <laughs> and it's it's really great. Yes. But it is a complicated correction that you do have to do if you're in complicated terrain. Yes. Uh, if because you're you... in... Oh, go ahead. Oh, because you want your data to mean something. And if you leave this out, that's a big deal. Yeah. And especially if you're doing microgravity. Right. Then it's huge. And right. if you're doing microgravity and you're in the city, sometimes you even have to correct for buildings. Yeah. Because that's a lot of steel or, yeah. you know, whatever else they've got in there. Because it's mass above you that's reducing the gravity vector. Mm -hmm. It's like a bouguet correction above you, sort of. Right, uh, exactly. In addition to deflecting the gravity vector, it can be really ugly. Mm -hmm. And if you got big basements in there, it does make a difference. Yeah. Um, there's the isostatic correction, which... Oh, boy. Yeah, so we're generally trying to look at stuff in the upper crust, and you got to think about, oh, there's mountain roots, but the, there's also thinner, denser oceanic crust. Mm -hmm. And there's this thing called the airy model. We use it. That's about all I want to say about the isostatic correction. Yeah, because that's a whole show, really. <laughs> uh, generally, I haven't messed with it too much. I'll say gotcha. that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then my favorite correction, quite possibly. <laughs> I've never heard of this. <laughs> oh, I love this one. And I'm going to butcher the name probably. <laughs> um, I've always heard it said et vos. It's, That's what it looks like. Yeah. This is what happens if your gravimeter's moving. Which doesn't seem like a good idea. <laughs> yeah, but we do take gravity surveys now that our instruments are so great oh. from boats and planes, planes. and moving things. Even, yeah. Yep, yep, you sure do, because you can cover so much more area. Mm. And I mean, that's how a lot of Antarctica's got gravity maps and magnetic maps and radar maps Just from, from overflights. Yep, exactly. Didn't even think then, about that. So we're all familiar with the Coriolis acceleration. Well, I think people misuse it, but yes. <laughs> uh, they misuse it greatly. It does not affect your toilet. Not at all. <laughs> uh, I have an entire essay on that on my blog that uh. mathematically shows you why it doesn't affect your toilet. <laughs> I'll link that in. So, <laughs> please. <laughs> in in even in meteorology, where we care about a lot of a lot of pretty fine details, mm -hmm. uh, we mm -hmm. don't think about the vertical component of the Coriolis acceleration much. No, not at all. It's tiny. We throw it out. Right. Yeah, because you're just worrying about whether you're deflecting, you know, left or right, essentially. Right. But if you are moving east or west. Your speed relative to the surface of the Earth, or your rotation speed is different than the surface right. speed below you, right? Mm-hmm, exactly. That causes this Coriolis effect, and it has a very tiny vertical component that you have to pull out if your gravimeter's moving any component east or west. And to make things more complicated, it's a function of both speed and direction. Uh, <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's fascinating if you're doing gravimetry from a boat, which is done, you have all kinds of other things to worry about, like how do you keep your gravimeter stable on a ship that's heaving in the seas, and yeah, what exactly. is your true um, free air correction Location because your elevation is constantly changing. It's a nightmare. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> then we ignore a lot of things like atmospheric pressure changes and electrical noise and micro seismic activity shaking the gravimeter a little bit wind blowing trees shaking the ground moving your test mass 
Which I like to think that eventually we're going to correct for that too. And it's just going to keep getting better and better. It will keep getting better. At some point you hit physics. Uh, (laughs) And then you just break on through. (laughs) There are a lot of uh, times where I've been doing gravity surveys that you hear a train whistle way off in the distance and everybody just stops. Oh, yeah. And it's time for a coffee break because the vibration from that train will kill you. Uh, I think we've stopped uh, when it was really windy one day. Mm-hmm. We stopped Absolutely. because our measurements were so erratic. So, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I've seen people set up like tents around the gravimeters in the field to try oh, to get... Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, it it can be pretty crazy. Uh, but we isolate a lot of those things, like the atmospheric pressure. That's why we have it in a vacuum. Right. Uh, but once you do all these corrections that we've just talked about, you finally have the Bouguer anomaly. Finally. And the Bouguer anomaly is what we interpret. Right. So these differences and all these corrections you've made on these differences should outline the shape of what you're looking at. Yeah. Or tell you something about what different layers of rock are doing. Right. Exactly. So this is where you need some geology and you should pay attention in class. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And then this is where you also need to have paid attention in math. Yeah. <laughs> and programming and numerical methods. <laughs> I uh, love that class. That was a good oh, class. Oh, yeah. That was one of my favorite undergraduate classes. <laughs> Me too. Um, <laughs> so we're nerds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let me push up my glasses here. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So there are some very basic problems like an infinite tube or a barrel or a sphere or a sheet. Right. That we can solve for, we would say, analytically. Uh, right. In terms of high school math education, they're plug and chug. Mm-hmm. You plug in the size, the density contrast, the depth, and there, it spits there out. You go. <laughs> yeah. And I actually even wrote, uh, as a class project, I think several years ago, uh, more than several years ago now, uh, a piece <laughs> of software to do this. Because if you're looking for something like a steam tunnel, you can probably use one of these simple models, simple simple bit of code. Um, I've even seen people do it in Excel again. <laughs> and there you go. It, that's You can interpret it. You're done. Problem is, rocks aren't shaped like steam tunnels. <laughs> no. Uh, I mean, not generally. <laughs> and if you have more than one sheet, you can't just have simple solutions. Uh, but luckily, there is a very easy way, relatively, um, to solve for any shape and number of layers by you create all of these points that define closed paths, uh, and then you do something called the Talwani method, which is just a fancy numerical method where you integrate around all these paths. Right, and then you define what you're looking at. Right, and there are, I'm pretty sure there are some open source tools that do this, uh, I, I used one that was not free when I was doing an undergraduate project, uh, but I'm pretty sure that somebody's got a free one now. Mm-hmm. And you try to do things like capture what the shape or the size or the mass or the depth or location of some anomaly is. So you'll have the gravity data that you collected, and you'll have the model, and you'll tweak the model and see if it gets closer or further away from <laughs> And you just iteratively do this tweaking either manually or through some kind of inversion 
method. Uh, uh, yep. <laughs> so basically you've made all these assumptions and you have this model and then you make all these other assumptions and just try to shove them together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, and this is where the non-uniqueness comes in too, right? Because like John said earlier, I know I keep harping on this, but it, it's not really, if you're not used to talking in the geophysical realm, this term of something being not new non-unique sort of is confusing and just like john said earlier you know you could have something that's really dense and close to the surface or you know something that's not as dense and really deep and that's why it's non-unique because it gives the same gravity anomaly so actually you have to flip that right dang it i knew i was gonna get it wrong (laughs) yeah so if if you're further away it has to be denser but or or bigger Uh. yeah so it's, it's a trade-off, and generally we constrain it with something like nearby seismic data or nearby boreholes. Right. Where we know where the interfaces of different kinds of rock are. Um, I did a gravity profile across part of Arkansas once where we did just that. I used some basic structural geology maps that somebody had created in the 60s. And I think they even used some of the old co-corp seismic data. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just... Use that as a starting point and then refine the model using gravity data. Uh, But this is where people get into trouble because they get obsessed with having the minimum misfit. Uh, And they start putting things in that they have no physical basis for, but it makes the model fit better. Uh, You can always get a perfect fit if you put enough fake stuff in. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And this is where, as a geologist, you need to know how to call... BS on a geophysicist (laughs) because you can always make it fit the model. And so you need to understand your setting so you can say, well, that's not true. There aren't 10,000 vertical one centimeter dikes around here. (laughs) Yeah. Take that out. (laughs) And so this is, I think it's probably a good place to close our discussion. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Before we get into uh, a fight. (laughs) But it reminds me of a joke that I know you know, and a lot of our listeners probably do. That a geologist, a geological engineer, and a geophysicist run a gaming show. And the host asks, what is one plus one? The geologist says, "Uh, about two. The uh, geological engineer, or petroleum engineer, either one, says it is 2.0000000 and goes on. The game show host then goes over to the geophysicist. The geophysicist puts his arm around the host, leans over and softly says, what do you want it to be? (laughs) Man, that got told at every meeting I've ever had in the oil industry. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So true. Yeah, so that's where you do have to be careful as a geophysicist and talk to your geologist friends. Exactly. I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, Yes, yes, let's do, um, before we become obsolete and (laughs) non-unique. Yes, uh, because people are probably getting tired about hearing about gravity. Uh, It is an attractive subject. I'm going to keep saying (laughs) it. Oh, (laughs) jeez. So I think that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, which is Fun Paper Friday. (laughs) Not gravity. That's what we're going to talk about. (laughs) Yes. This was something that was popularized by Mythbusters. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you remember, they did 
on one of the episodes, I'll try to link a, a YouTube clip of it in the show notes, where they interleaved the pages of two phone books and then tried to pull them apart. And it didn't work. It's very hard. They ended up using two tanks <laughs> to pull the phone books apart uh, because two rental cars didn't work. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I got down a wiki hole of watching all the different things of um, people trying to redo this experiment as well. I saw two semis try it. And yeah. Yeah. One of my friends in undergrad actually did this. He got two phone books because oh, no that's, kidding. this is the best use for phone books that I know. Oh, of. obviously. <laughs> uh, and sat there, turned on, you know, some Netflix uh, series <laughs> and just interleaved pages of phone books for a few hours. Yeah, that looked like the worst part. <laughs> yeah. And this is actually a paper that was recently published in Physical Review Letters. It's the first 2016 paper that we've done. Oh, I didn't uh, even notice it's that yeah. new. <laughs> nice. Yes, it is. It's uh, January 8th, so Freshly a little over 10 minted. days ago. Awesome. Yeah. And it's called Self-Amplification of Solid Friction in Interleaved Assemblies, which is a nerdy way to say phone books. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I love that. And I'm totally saying that from now on. That was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but they do link some of the YouTube uh, videos actually in the, um, in the paper itself, including the, the military tank one, too. Yeah. And I mean, they basically... Very a few parameters uh, about the phone books, number of pages, area of overlap, that kind of thing. And then using a testing machine like we would use for rocks, pull them apart and measure the force. Uh, right. So they point out that like a lot of people said that, you know, once you do this interleaving thing, uh, the friction between the pages as well as gravity keeps you from being able to rip them apart, you know, which isn't true because you can actually do this in any orientation and not be able to pull the phone books apart so we just say friction and that's where we leave it which was sort of the basis of why they did these experiments because we never really understood exactly what was happening and beyond just saying friction does this yeah and this is where uh, it actually was in the paper but when i first saw it i thought oh i need to talk about Amonton's laws they did it for me so, yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, they did. Amonton's <laughs> laws are, you know, these, I hate to call them laws because they're not physical laws, uh, but these but principles they call them. <laughs> about friction, right? Uh, so the three, quote, laws of friction are that the force of friction is directly proportional to the applied load. Okay. Okay, which basically means that there's a coefficient of friction that's constant. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. The force of friction is independent of the apparent area of contact. Okay, so it's working which, on all scales. Yeah, so no matter how big your block is, friction is the same value as long as it's the same material. Right. And that kinetic friction is independent of sliding velocity, which is not totally true. We know that now. Right, yeah, that starts to break down. <laughs> right. So it's a puzzle here because phone books, you're not really applying any normal force outside you know you're not putting weights on them or anything to try to hold them together right and the friction of paper is in the realm of friction of normal materials it's like 0.7 something mm -hmm. uh, so why are these so hard to pull apart yeah um it's really 
really interesting, right? And this is where the title part, the self-amplification comes in, right? Exactly. Um, like John said, you know, they they did all kinds of different, you know, they interleaved them with a lot of overlap, with not a lot of overlap, and all this different stuff. But the point is, the interleaving itself amplifies the friction so much so that you can't pull them apart. Yeah, and we know the friction between all the pages is going to be the same 0.7 whatever value. Right. But you think about the phone books have a definite thickness at the spine, Mm -hmm. but interleaving these pages, you effectively make the entire stack twice as thick, right? Right, yeah. So when you pull, you actually get an increase in normal force because the pages are squeezing together. Right. That increase in normal force increases the traction force required to pull the phone books apart. Friction remains constant. And there you go. Right. Um, They have a really elegant sentence illustrating that um, in the paper. And it says, It is this finite force corresponding to no more than the weight of a butterfly that is self-amplified by the operator, either in a well-controlled experiment, as we've carried out here, or when lifting a car with phone books and then they link to one of these youtube videos right (laughs) right (laughs) um so yeah um they say in our experiment the boundary force originates from the elasticity of the paper and talking about how you know the outer sheets are flat and they resist the bowing and that creates this small frictional force and as you keep pulling keeps self-amplifying and you can't pull it apart and this is not the only example of self-amplifying frictional systems. If you have trouble thinking about how the phone book gets more normal force and the force required to tear it apart goes up with a constant friction value, uh, you should invest in a Chinese finger trap. <laughs> yes, the other cool part of this. <laughs> um, yeah, so those really cheap little woven braided papery things that, you know, I always would get like at the skating rink or something, right? Yeah. You could win these little things and you can't get your fingers out of them. It's terrifying. (laughs) Um, But it's the same sort of thing, right? Um, The harder you you pull, the tighter it grips, the the tighter it grips, the more force is required. Exactly. Exactly. So um, they use those braids. It's kind of cool. I didn't really even think about this as sutures and surgery And uh, this is really neat, too. It says it's also thought to play a role in adhesive proteins. So how proteins bind to things using these tiny little, um, you know, frictional forces that get stronger the more that you apply something to them. So it's kind of neat. Yeah. I mean, this is another case, like we love to do on Fun Paper Fridays, where something that sounds totally absurd has actual societal consequence. (laughs) And if you keep reading all the way through to the acknowledgments, um, it's really great because the authors thank this French television show that's a science show that uh, translates roughly into something about guinea-pigging people (laughs) and (laughs) guinea-pigging science experiments, um, which stimulated the study, they said. So that's awesome. Like, these guys were literally sitting around watching science shows on TV and come up with this, you know, very exact explanation that they then empirically derived an equation for this that we didn't know about. We knew it was this thing that happened and it was friction, but now we have, you know, these dimensionless parameters that we can apply and understand exactly what's happening at the macro and microscopic level. Yeah, and actually another really cool thing about this paper that I did not do on purpose, uh, 
in figure two, they actually show what's called stick slip. Yes, I have a note on here that says, oh, I see why you liked this paper. <laughs> right. And As soon as I read that. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to choose. We have a, a vast array of fun papers mm-hmm. waiting in the wings, but mm-hmm. this one jumped out. And stick slip is actually what I spend most of every day studying and doing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and any of my intro students, this was on every single test I gave this semester, was how do faults move? <laughs> yeah, and it's exactly what it sounds like, right? So it's stuck and then it slips. Uh, the process of stick slip is responsible for chatter of tools, like when you open something and two pieces of metal scrape together and make that really awful screech. <laughs> that's stick slip. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of animals utilize it to make their sounds, lobsters especially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's also, yeah, it's how we make laboratory earthquake analogs as we make these little stick slip events in the lab. And here they did it with phone books. Uh, yeah, so even paper can do it, but basically they ignore it. So I thought that yeah. was kind of funny too. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just like you said, you make your career on sediments and are on sedimentary rocks and I just call everything sediments. You know, I'm <laughs> spending three to four years studying stick slip and they say, eh, it's, we're ignoring it and it's moving in, it. In less than one sentence, they dismiss your entire, <laughs> well, this is another person's noise is, you know, one person's data, so. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, some of these forces are not insignificant also. I mean, they're up to a kilonewton. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, obviously, if it takes... So the video that I watched was two semis trying to pull it apart, and they had this awful, awful non-CGS thing, and um, they wound up actually just ripping the pages apart. So when you looked on the ground, the pages were still interleaved together, and they did that at like 4,300 pounds per square foot or something. Yeah. So, yeah, that was a lot of force. Yeah, and that's in one of those imperial units that... Yeah. Oh, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, the, so, and the guy in the video just said 4,200. I had to look up the instrument to actually figure out what it was measuring, but <laughs> that's beside the point. <laughs> units, they matter. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, they, uh, they do a really nice job in this paper. And, oh, here we go. They actually do quote uh, the friction value of about 0.73 plus or minus 0.02. Uh, yep. In geoscience, we say that all rock is 0.6 to 0.8, and then we found that clays are like 0.1. So that kind of blew that out of the water. Suckers. That's what you get for broad brushing all of our rocks. Yeah. (laughs) So there are some variations, but this is a pretty typical thing. And the frictional mechanics of how paper works, how glass works, how wood works, and how rocks work are all described by pretty much the same set of equations. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that was a really neat read. Yeah. And if you have any ideas for fun papers, we've been getting some more listener mail about people that we should interview and some fun paper ideas. Uh, so we're going to follow up on all that. And if you have any ideas, you should send them in to us. We love hearing from you. I uh, love hearing any comments, corrections, anything like that. And we also would appreciate it if you take the time to go over to iTunes and write a quick review for us because that helps other people find the show and hopefully they'll like it too. Exactly. Um, don't send us your correction. I understand um, it, it's not a Kame. It's called a Kame. That's my glacial correction. I'm going to get that out there. 
<laughs> but if you have anything else to say, you, you can contact us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, as always, we're posting fun stuff on Twitter, at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.